You know, whilst I've had disappointments in life, I can't imagine what it must feel like to get so close to achieving your ultimate goal only to have it dashed right at the very end. I was reading an article this week in a magazine where this happened to a lady called Kirsty Ennis. Who is she? This is Kirsty Ennis. Kirsty Ennis is a retired US Marine Corps sergeant, and she was injured in a helicopter accident in Helmand Provost in Afghanistan in 2012, and she lost her left leg when the helicopter crashed. And since that day, she's tried to adopt life with a, a motivational attitude, and she's taken on adventure sports like mountaineering, snowboarding as her new challenge in life. She set up her own foundation to help other amputees. And the motto of that foundation is to simply keep climbing. Most notably, in the last 10 years, she has scaled six of the so-called seven summits, the highest peaks on each of the seven continents. In 2019, she almost reached the peak of the big one, Mount Everest, when she was forced to turn back when the team's oxygen ran low. And so in May this year, she tried once again to scale Everest, and once again, things did not turn out as planned. After 43 days of climbing, when she was about 200 metres from the summit of Everest, she had to make the agonising decision to turn around. She clearly isn't a quitter, so why? Why did she decide to call it a day? Well, I don't know about you, but I would assume that climbing Everest was the pursuit of the brave few. However, it only has a limited climbing season. And in limited climbing season, this is what Everest looks like. It's like ants crawling up a hill. Literally, Hundreds of metres from the summit, they queue and they don't move. They have to wear oxygen masks because there's nothing up there. And for an amputee, one of the greatest fears that she has in climbing mountains is that her good limb will suffer frostbite. And that then starts to affect everything else. The minute the queue ground to a halt and was not moving, it became quite clear that that would therefore have a knock-on effect on her descent. And rather than a 12-hour descent, it would take 24 hours to descend back down to base camp. She couldn't risk it. She wouldn't survive. And 200 metres from the top, in that queue, she made the agonising decision to turn around. Tell me, what would you have done? I'm not so sure I'd have wanted to do that, having made all that effort and to be so close. Yet the longer she stayed in the queue, the risk of not surviving increased. And so she made the agonising decision to turn around and walk the other way. In our journey with Paul through Ephesians that we've been doing since Pentecost Sunday, we've now reached chapter four. We've had the rich theology of the first three chapters where Paul tells what God has done in Christ to unite people from all nations to himself and to one another in the church. We've seen that everybody has that same dynamis power available to them that raised Jesus from the dead. 
And having summarized the gospel story in that, that theology of the first three chapters, here in chapter four, Paul goes on to say how the gospel story now goes on to shape our story. Claire started it last week. She talked about the Christian walk. She talked of the dynamis walk, how we should remember our calling, imitate the character of Christ seek unity and use our gifts. Well, in this next section from verse 17 onward, Paul begins to specifically address the Gentile converts. And in essence, what he's saying to them is exactly what that poor lady had to do on the mountain. Paul is saying to the Gentile converts, turn around, walk the other way. That's his message in a nutshell. Turn around, walk the other way. In his opening verses, he tells them very clearly that since the Gentile audience has been brought by God's grace into this new way of life, they have to act in accordance with their new status rather than according to their old ways prior to Christ. They have to turn around and walk in a new direction. Those first few verses, it doesn't sound great, does it? I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. It's not exactly the nicest description, is it, really? Lionel Windsor, in his comments on this passage, he says these words. Why is Paul writing these things about the world? He's not writing so that we can gloat, nor is he writing so that we can judge. He's writing so that we can live. Because Paul knows that those who believe in Christ have something far greater to live and hope for. If we believe in Christ, we don't need to walk the way the world walks. We have hope. We have a great calling. And so we can. In fact, we must turn around and walk the other way. And so this week, as we look at our post-Pentecostal theme of dunamis, meaning power, we want to consider the power that's available to each and every one of us to walk another way, to transform In this part of Ephesians, Paul is saying to Christian believers that the gospel that they've come to believe in has to change the way they walk. And it needs to affect everything about their daily lives. As Christian believers, our walk is to be radically different. We're to walk different from those who aren't saved. We are to walk very different from our pre-conversion days. Look at the verses in verses 22 to 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted in its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I look at these verses and I see three things, three clear things that Paul is saying to us. Firstly, put off the old self. Secondly, be renewed in your mind, in your thinking. And thirdly, put on a new self. 
Just think about it for a moment. What happens at that point that we come to faith? When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, a radical change takes place in each and every one of us. You become a new person in Jesus Christ. God makes you a new person. You're created in righteousness with the ability to be holy as God is holy. Now, I don't believe the ability or the desire to sin is eradicated. Some do. Some believe in a a special blessing of holiness that means it's not possible to sin again. I've yet to see the person who claims to be saved who hasn't got the ability still to sin and who doesn't. The ability to desire or desire to sin isn't eradicated. However, this power that the old self once had has been broken. It doesn't have to control us anymore. When you're saved, you remove that power. In the same way that at the end of the day, you take off your dirty clothes and you put them in the wash bin. Instead, you get the ability to put on a new suit of clothes, like going to the wardrobe again, putting on something that's totally different. And from that point on, we become, all of us, involved in the ongoing process of renewing our mind. And so the spiritual change that takes place at salvation continues in our experience and behavior. In the sight of God, we are a new person. And as such, we must act upon that truth in our behavior. And so this is why Paul tells the believers, our walk has to be radically different. And so for the remainder of this chapter now, he exhorts them in a series of do's and don'ts as to how they should do this. All of them are based on the truth that who we are empowers and is reflected in what we do. And that's so correct, isn't it? Who we are empowers and is reflected in what we do. You are this, now you are this, so in turn, from now, this, on, this in turn is what you should do from now on. That's the simple message. You are this, now you are this, now you should do this. And so Paul goes on to give practical examples of the transformed new life. Verse 25, he starts off and he says integrity. The first mark of the transformed new son is integrity. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Notice for Paul, it's not just good enough to put off the negative trait. There has to be something positive as well. It's not just enough to put off falsehood. We've got to speak truthfully. I don't know about you, but I think spiritual integrity requires brutal self-honesty. It demands a considerable depth of self-awareness. It needs an uncompromising willingness to be authentic. And you know what? When we live with integrity, we are motivated to become better versions of ourselves. We're drawn to learning and to growth. And so integrity is God-like life of consistency and sincerity. No deception, no pretense. 
And so the first mark of the transformed new self is integrity. The second one, he goes on in verse 26 and 27, is to do with our anger management. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. You know, when I read this the first time around, I expected to find in there Paul telling the believers that you shouldn't get angry. That would be logical, wouldn't it? That actually we shouldn't get angry. But he doesn't. This isn't telling us we shouldn't be angry. It's about our anger management. Actually, we should be angry about certain things. Social injustices should make us angry. They should move us to the point that we want to do something. There is a place for righteous anger, but it's got to be controlled. We've got to limit our anger. Interesting, later on in, the, in, in this passage, in 31 and 32, Paul says that the new self is marked out by a tender spirit of kindness and forgiveness. What's the third thing he says in this transform new self? He, he talks about work ethic. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So as far as Paul is concerned, Christians are, to be honest, hardworking people who are orientated towards giving, not taking. The old self was motivated by selfishness, out to get what it could for itself. The new self, however, is not lazy, it's not self-centered. Instead, it works hard in order to give to others. So for Paul, the transformed new self is not in relationships for what it can take, but for what it can give. Fourthly, verse 29, Paul speaks about our communication and our speech. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. When I was younger, there's only two of us in our family, my brother and I, along with mum and dad, and we used to fight like cat and dog. Great friends now, great friends now. But we would bicker from the moment we got up. I can see that actually being transferred to my daughters now, and the, the payback is coming around full circle. But we used to bicker like cat and dog. What did my mother say? When we started to bicker, it was the same phrase every time, hold your tongue. What? Actually, when you think about it, it's not so stupid. Try it. Try holding your tongue now and having a conversation to the person next door. You will have the most interesting dialogue you've ever had. You know, Paul isn't just telling people here to hold their tongues. He's actually saying, I want you to replace destructive words with constructive words. Words that build each other person up to their point of need. Listen, I think there's always a proper place for criticism or challenge. But, you know, when we start to take pleasure in doing things like that, it would be wiser to say nothing. 
Finally, Paul says this, our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. That's a mark of the transformed new self. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Those of us who are involved in ministry know that grief is a very human emotion. And at times, I think we all wonder, how on earth can we possibly, or how can the possibly the, the Holy Spirit, this all-powerful, all-knowing creator, how can the Holy Spirit possibly grieve? And yet, it's clear the Holy Spirit does grieve. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his writings, suggests we should actually take great comfort in the fact that the Holy Spirit does indeed grieve. He says this, it's an expressibly delightful thought that he who rules heaven and earth and is the creator of all things and the infinite and ever-blessed God condescends to enter into such infinite relationships with these people that his divine mind may be affected by their actions. What a marvel that deity should be said to grieve over the faults of being so utterly insignificant as we are. I like that thought. The depth of the relationship God has with us is shown by the fact that he does grieve. John Stott says of the Spirit, since he is the Holy Spirit, he's always grieved by unholiness. And since he is the one Spirit, disunity will also cause him grief. In fact, anything incompatible with the purity or unity of the church is incompatible with his own nature and therefore hurts him. The Holy Spirit is a sensitive spirit. He hates sin, discord and falsehood and shrinks away from them. Therefore, if we wish to avoid hurting him, we shall shrink from them too. Every spirit-filled believer desires to bring him pleasure, not pain. You know, for Paul, the new self is motivated to please God, not to grieve God. What a wonderful way to get up every morning. I am going to live my life today to please God and not grieve him. I have never climbed Everest. I am not in any intention that adventurous. I have climbed a few important things in my time. When I lived in Australia, I seemed to be able to walk the Sydney Harbour Bridge all the time and climb that. Anytime any visitors came into town, they'd always say, can we walk over the bridge? Okay, yeah, I'll do it again. For somebody who's terrified of heights, that was the sum total of my, my day. But, you know, to do that, to climb the Harbour Bridge, you have to dress up. Well, not dress up, you have to wear special clothes. It look, looks something like this. And when you go into the place where you start to go, you're just given this box, and there's a, a jumpsuit, there's cables, there's uh, belts that... And you look at yourself and you think to yourself, what on earth am I saying? How do I wear this? And it takes 10 minutes just to work out how on earth it all goes together, where your leg goes, where your arm goes, where this bit goes. The idea of that is to make sure that you can be strapped onto the bridge at all times. You cannot fall off it. You're not just left to meander aimlessly over. You have a wire that is attached to the bridge at all times just in case you go over the side. Equally so, the whole purpose of the jumpsuit is to stop you dropping anything on anybody below, causing them serious injury. Every time I did that jolly walk, I used to get to this kit and think, oh, I've forgotten how to put this on. 
Do you know, I think we've been talking about the new self this morning, putting on the new self. I think for most of us, the challenge is, well, how do I put it on? How can I be this new self that Paul is really talking about? How do we do it? Well, we can't transform ourselves into the image of Christ. Only God, through grace, can do that. However, I do believe we create the conditions in which spiritual transformation takes place. Ruth Haley Barton says this, which I found very helpful. Spiritual practices are not ways to make brownie points with God or to prove our spiritual superiority to others. They are not a self-help program by which we take control of our journey and change ourselves. Rather, spiritual disciplines are concrete activities that we engage in in order to make ourselves available for the work that only God can do. In essence, we've got to be intentional about creating the conditions for transformation by engaging in disciplines that help us surrender ourselves to God. Simple as that. Not just in theory, but in reality. And if we want to be the new self that our faith in Jesus promises and gives us the hope for, then we need to be intentional in creating the conditions for transformation to take place. And when we do that, God takes this simple offering of ourselves and does with it what we cannot do, producing within us deeply ingrained habits of love and peace and joy in the Spirit. Spiritual transformation takes place incrementally. WLD, Major Vick will tell you this, WLD talks about one degree shifts. And that's spiritual transformation. And you know what? And finally, the final point. Paul makes it very clear to us all that spiritual transformation is always given in the context of community. This letter to Ephesians is no different. Put simply, we need each other. If I'm going to grow, I need you. If you're going to grow, you need us. We need each other because we grow and are transformed and put on the new self in community. And whilst our spiritual disciplines and practices are very often private, they're in our own home, there are also others that must include disciplines and practices that we do together in community. You know, over recent weeks, we've been considering this word dynamis, power. We've been looking at what it means to have the dynamis power that came at Pentecost and putting it into our lives daily. Claire last week spoke of the dynamis walk, the power given to us in our walk. And today we've added a little bit more to that by saying that the power given to us by God is a power to transform, to enable us to walk in a radically different way from the way we used to be before we came to know God through Jesus. And it's the dynamis power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to be transformed into a new self. Therefore, we need to be intentional in creating the conditions for God to do what only he can do. Every day I look at myself and I ask this question, have I changed? I came to faith in 1985. Have I actually changed? How have I changed? 
How can I change? Do I want to change? Do I want to put on the new self? Well, perhaps we can each ask ourselves that question. And just before we come to the end of our meeting, we're going to give ourselves a moment of reflection. A moment of that spiritual discipline, that that practice where we can just practice the quietness where God can do his work. And there's that beautiful old chorus that simply says, Spirit of the living God, dunamis, fall afresh on me, break me, melt me, old self, mould me, fill me, new self. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me, transform me, help me to change, because that's what I want. I don't want the new self. I, I don't want the old self. I want the new self. I want my mind to be renewed. I want to bear all the hallmarks of the new self, integrity, management of my emotions, discernment to the spirit. I want to live to please God. I want all that I say and think be God-honoring. So spirit, the living God, today, fall afresh on me. In our quietness this morning, perhaps we can just do that. And maybe for you, it might be time to take off what's on, put it in the wash bin, and go to the wardrobe and get some new self. Together, let's sing. just close our eyes let's create the conditions where transformation can happen have you changed how have you changed how can you change do you want to change Spirit of the living God.
with your eyes closed. Sing it with me once more to finish this time before we conclude. Come just now to pray to you. We will put off the old self. We will have that renewing of our mind. And we'll put on the new self that will turn around and walk in a different way. May we live a life that pleases you. May we live a life that is transformed in every way through the power of the Spirit. Answer prayer. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.